Hello, and welcome to Code Patrol, the podcast that views the world through code-colored glasses. I'm your host, Lisa Vaz, Senior Content Marketing Manager at Contrast Security. CISA has proposed that software suppliers to the federal government must self-attest that their products have been developed in a secure manner. In other words, that they followed particular aspects of NIST's Secure Software Development Framework, which includes the use of software bills of materials, software composition analysis tools, requirements for securing the software supply chain, and probably other tools tools that handle uh, vulnerability detection and remediation. The problem, how exactly can you digest a massive dump of self-attestation forms when there's no one machine-readable standard to handle them? OWASP is on it. At this point, it's clear that all SBOMs aren't created equal. OWASP, the manager behind the Cyclone DX project, has ushered in a slew of new types of SBOMs. Right now, Cyclone DX is one of the most popular standards for describing the components of an application, including source code, binaries, libraries, and containers. With the latest release of the specification, version 1.5, OWASP expanded it even further to encompass hardware, operations, manufacturing, and artificial intelligence. Today, our guest is Steve Springett, chair of the OWASP Cyclone DX core working group, who's here to go over the changes and what they mean for software transparency. Welcome to Code Patrol, Steve, and thanks for taking the time to join us. Thank you so much, for Lisa, for, for having me on, and thank you for Contra Security for hosting this podcast. It's our pleasure. So, Steve, could you start us off by telling us a bit about yourself? Absolutely. I've been doing software supply chain since around 2012 or so. Uh, prior to that, I was doing physical supply chains back in 2008, uh, where I was uh, doing mostly for the pharmaceutical industry, uh, tracking uh, you know, raw materials all the way through manufacturing, distribution, all the way to your pharmacy shelves. Uh, got into uh, software supply chain in 2012, have been doing that for the last decade or so. Um, I'm the leader of a couple different OWASP projects, uh, the OWASP Cyclone DX uh, Bill of Materials Standard, um, which I currently chair the core working group. I am the co-author of the OWASP Software, Com uh, Software Component Verification Standard, which mm -hmm. helps organizations identify and uh, uh, improve their software supply chain insurance. And I'm also the creator and uh, co-leader of the OWASP Dependency Track Project, which is kind of a reference implementation for how you would consume and start analyzing bills and materials in your organization. Um, what I actually get paid to do is uh, I'm the director of product security at ServiceNow, where I, me and my team help the thousands of developers that we have, uh, help them build and uh, deliver secure and resilient software. Oh, great. Well, you are definitely steeped in security when it comes to uh, supply chains. Um, so, so Steve, we recently worked together on uh, a blog we, we published of yours about the five aspects of SBOM quality, the five dimensions. So why don't we start there? Like, Could you tell us what can lead to lack of SBOM quality, as in bills of materials that are somehow rendered untrustworthy? Yeah, so an SBOM in a sense, is just a text file, whether it's uh, XML or JSON. Um, that text file is uh, usually, in a lot of cases, built in, a, in the course of a, a build pipeline. Uh, and it can be 
potentially altered, whether it's in, uh, accidental, uh, intentional, whatever. So how do you start injecting different types of um, uh, data in there so that you can um, elevate the, uh, the quality of, of this perceived text file that, they, that you have? And it's regardless of SBOM format, et cetera. Um, and what we kind of came up with are these, these five dimensions, which um, briefly, uh, and, they're, and they're all coming from OWASP, but the OWASP Software Component Verification Standard, or SCVS, uh, is about ready to release its BOM maturity model. And the BOM maturity model is a formal taxonomy of all the different things that could potentially go into a bill of, bill of material, descriptions of what these things are, level of difficulty in achieving this, and it really encompasses the breadth and depth of the different types of data uh, that can be in a bill of material. And those are the two, the first two dimensions, the breadth and the depth. The breadth meaning how many different types of data are in there, and the depth meaning that how difficult was it for you to actually represent that data in the bill of material, right? Um, the other three things that we identify as um, SBOM quality indicators uh, go in go to the life cycles which a bill of material was uh, created through right um, there are certain um, whether it's you're in a build life cycle uh, post build etc there's certain life cycles that you might want to favor over others or you might want to favor the combination of multiple life cycles because that's going to give you more coverage for example mm -hmm. um, the techniques that are used in uh, the ability to identify what those components are for example, um, anything that does binary analysis or things like that, in addition to uh, things like manifest analysis, where you're looking at build artifacts. So what were the different techniques that were used in identifying what those components are? And then the fifth dimension is how confident are you in each one of these techniques, as well as the overall of all of the different techniques that were used to identify what those components were. So these are the five different dimensions and together they really give the the audience the end user the data necessary to make informed decisions about the quality of the s bombs that they're going to get from vendors hmm. you know it occurs to me it's a very subjective thing to state how confident you are in an s bomb like what what relevance does that have given that people would likely say like oh yeah this is great regardless of what kind of gunk it is you know yeah again you know it's a, it's a confidence score um but uh obviously there's there's going to be use cases and abuse cases for everything and as consumers, you kind of have to know what the guidelines are. Fortunately, OWASP has actually published guidelines for what are the expected ranges for each one of the different techniques. So if things are falling outside of those ranges, then you kind of know that this is potentially being gamified. Um, but you're, you're absolutely right. Like, um, and one of the different techniques is, in fact, an attestation, right? Maybe it's not a, a, a technical technique that was used. Maybe it was a manual forensics things that was that was done. And as an organization, I'm actually attesting to the fact that this is this particular component, which is a perfectly valid use case. Okay. Uh, but you're right, all this data needs to come together to be analyzed and uh, critiqued for the end user to make informed decisions. Okay, fair enough. So describe for me, 
how the new capabilities in Cyclone DX 1.5 are making software transparency a, a reality. I, I know that uh, our CTO, contrast CTO, Jeff Williams, is particularly happy about the ability to capture detailed evidence to prove the SBOM is correct, such as methods, techniques, and calls, call stacks. But uh, you, you tell me about the new capabilities. Absolutely. Um, so the um, again, going back to the component evidence, we, we expanded the evidence uh, in Cyclone DX in, in version 1.5 to be able to capture the, the different methods and techniques that were used to identify components, the confidence. Uh, we also included um, additional support for like call stacks so that uh, you could actually describe whether or not a component is invoked in the context of the application that it's actually used in. Um, there's a lot of data, Contrast has some of this data, other vendors do as well, but there's a lot of data that suggests that just because you're including uh, a component in your application doesn't necessarily mean that it's either called or that vulnerable function is, is called. And being able to describe that um, is, is really important, especially for development teams that have time box constraints, right? If I'm a development team and I have X amount of hours to fix things, and I don't, don't necessarily know, I, I don't have the visibility to know whether or not something is invoked or not, I'm kind of flying blind, right? Mm -hmm. I, might, I might prioritize based on uh, severity, um, not based on whether or not a component is actually invoked or not in my application. So for teams that have time box constraints, this additional capability in Cyclone 1.5, I think is truly important. Yeah, I can see why Jeff would like this <laughs> very much. Um, okay, so version 1.5 also introduced an explosion of new types of S-bombs. Could you please run down what types of bombs it includes and why OWASP considered these to be necessary? Absolutely. So Cyclone currently supports um, uh, software bill of materials or S-bomb, uh, SAS bomb or software as a service bill of materials, which is the inventory of all of your services. So for cloud native shops that want to uh, start identifying what their services are, et cetera. SAS bomb is, is kind of where that's at. Uh, hardware bill of materials or H-bombs, uh, operational bill of materials or O-bombs. These are things that Cyclone DX supports today. A um, mm -hmm. couple new types in 1.5 that we released uh, are things like machine learning bill of materials or ML bombs. ML transparency is really, really important. And, um, you know, obviously generative AI is a, is a lot of rage and all that, uh, which we'll talk about, but ML bomb and, and machine learning transparency is really important going forward. Uh, but we also uh, saw a need for manufacturing bill of materials or M bombs. Now M bombs are, are used in industry uh, quite regularly, not necessarily in the software industry so much, but in physical supply chains. If I'm producing uh, a, a telephone, a, a, you know, a smartphone, um, I might have an M-bomb that describes all the components that went into manufacturing that phone, as well as all the packaging material and even the shrink wrap so that I can replicate that mm -hmm. phone across multiple factories in multiple um, areas of the world, right? And, and get the exact same product. Well, an M-bomb for software, uh, we saw that as kind of a necessity as well. So uh, we, 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 develop the specification that we can describe the uh the recipe uh for how something should be created 
versus the um, what actually transpired in the kitchen. So we actually support both of these use cases. And when it comes to identifying uh, potential risk in components that we either create or consume from others, knowing how something was built is truly important. You know, you can go back to like the solar winds type of thing. Right? That was not a vulnerable component. That was, you know, a vulnerability in the pipeline that existed that then affected the, the software delivery itself, right? Mm -hmm. And if they had captured the, the manufacturing bill of materials, if this had been a thing uh, at that time, uh, they could have potentially used that data to identify a potential gap, potential weakness in their, in their build pipeline and could have you know, proactively put measures in place to, uh, to uh, remove that gap. So we thought manufacturing bill of materials were, were truly important for, uh, for transparency. Oh, thank you so much for um, clarifying that. That's really interesting. But I, I, I absolutely have to ask you about generative AI because uh, it's red hot at the moment. So um, explain to me a little bit more about why it's so important to show what machine learning capabilities are present. Yeah, the, um, the interesting thing about um, machine learning um, and models in general is that they they they're just software at the end of the day. And knowing the pedigree and provenance of the models, uh, how things were trained, how they were evaluated, kind of matters, right? There's um, much like you can, um, much like you can have a, an open source component today and, and publish that to a, a known repository, maybe like Maven Central or NPMJS, um, and you can have a malicious component. Um, the same thing is true for machine learning models. Mm -hmm. um, today, we know today that adversarial nation states are creating um, machine learning models that are very similar to other models that exist, um, except they're tainted. They are tainted with the, uh, the, the certain explainability. Given a certain input, it's going to produce a, an expected output. And mm -hmm. that is by design because, again, they are malicious models. So it's really important to be able to track the pedigree and provenance. Who made these models? Where did they come from? How were they trained? How were they evaluated? Um, because some of the machine learning that's, that's in use today isn't just about security and your, your social networking and that, and that sort of thing that might traditionally affect confidentiality, integrity, and availability. Right? Machine learning today also encompasses things like public safety where things where algorithms actually have a direct impact on human life. So this is why transparency of machine learning algorithms um, and the entirety of, of how they were trained and evaluated is truly important. Mm -hmm. Well, give me some examples of what, what could go terribly wrong. Like when you say that human lives could be impacted, could you give an example of, of how AI is incorporated in, in such a potentially dire situation that it could harm people? Sure, you know, being able to recognize based on patterns, uh, ML, uh, potential, you know, uh, cancer patients in the future, right? Being able to taint that model in a way where you are injecting bias against a certain demographic, um, even intentionally, um, is interesting. And it probably, you know, it's an interesting use case. Um, and if you are an adversarial nation, uh, you might want to attack your, your, your adversaries in, in that particular way. Um, another case might be smart cities, right? Learning traffic patterns dynamically and then making modifications to do something about those in real time, right? So there's a lot of 
real world implications on these even even things as such as you know going to your neighbor neighborhood um 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 a supermarket where in a lot of cases ml is actually uh, uh behind a lot of the sensors in the store all the cameras etc that are powering those particular stores right so how can you misuse the, these algorithms in a way as to affect human uh, decisions in the real world mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and and of course i guess uh uh we can assume that um uh, malware has already uh, been produced by these things uh, tainted code malicious code has been and will be produced right yeah absolutely so um you, again knowing knowing where something came from knowing uh, the pedigree and provenance um um knowing what's in operations today this is why operational bill of materials is important um that way you can actually track what your baseline is versus what's actually in in production right now right right god this is getting to be so much more than just a bill of items a bill of materials um so let me talk uh let's talk about three new capabilities identity evidence occurrences and call stack how can those things save time when it comes to investigating a project's real world risk and the impact of vulnerabilities Sure. The um, the identity of a given component is, um, you know, we, we have evidence of that, uh, as, as stated earlier. And this is truly important in terms of like, uh, you know, maybe a PCERT team or uh, any kind of team that's investigating a potential vulnerability, uh, because you should probably take in consideration um, the confidence in the accuracy of that given component, right? Um, how was that component actually um, identified. Um, one really common use case is backporting security fixes. So in the in the event that I cannot upgrade a component for give, whatever reason, I can't upgrade a component to the latest version, therefore I start backporting security fixes. Well, how that component was identified is important because if I'm only relying on maybe like the manifest from my build system, I'm probably not uh, capturing all the changes and modifications that went, went into that. Therefore, the identity of that is, is not truly captured as well. So I, I might be spending some, um, some cycles investigating some, something that actually doesn't represent any risk to me, right? Because it's already been resolved. Okay. Um, same thing for occurrences, right? Um, I might actually have a, a, a given component um, uh, in, in in, in an application, but it's distributed on on two different parts of maybe like the file system or in firmware, it might be at two different memory addresses for whatever reason. Um, so being able to um, identify where exactly in your application or device that particular code is, 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 is important because you, you don't want to necessarily miss something, right? You don't want to half fix something. Mm-hmm. And then of course the, um, um, the call stack, you know, not wasting your time on, on, uh, on trying to remediate things that aren't necessarily uh, being called in the context of your application, right? Maybe that's one of those cases where as a vendor, as a software vendor, maybe you don't fix that, right? Because it doesn't actually, uh, you know, present risk to your customers at the end of the day, right? The vulnerability is there, but it can't be exploited because the component is never called. 
Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Again, the in, uninvoked thing that we don't need to spend so much time chasing down. Yeah. Well, Steve, thank you for that. Um, could you address the addition of proof of concept data on vulnerabilities? As I understand it, uh, software teams can use it to document and demonstrate how a vulnerability could theoretically be exploited. I, what elements might that include? Like proof of the exploit happening or payloads to trigger the exploit, maybe code for remediation, things like that? Yeah, so one of the bomb types that, uh, that Cyclone DX supports is a bill of vulnerabilities. So if you wanted to trade vulnerability data between different systems, uh, Cyclone DX is it's more than capable of doing that. It's been doing it since I think 2019 or so. Um, but if you want to also um, uh, represent vulnerabilities against a given service or a given piece of software, Cyclone DX can do that as well. So we find this extremely useful for uh, vulnerability disclosure type purposes, um, not in the public sense, like in the formal, like. Cert CC type of uh, sense of public disclosure. Most disclosures don't happen that way. They happen internally. A lot of disclosures happen between, like maybe a pen testing team, a red team, and your 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 development organization. Right? They never see the light of day. They they never go outside the the four walls of that organization. Or in the case of an external pen test firm, you've actually paid that firm to you know analyze a, a given component or service for you. How can they communicate? Uh, all that data to you in a in a way that uh, you can start using right away. Um, unfortunately, a lot of times this data, whether it's red teams, pen test firms, etc., often ends up in a PDF, right? And a PDF is not actionable. If you give a developer a PDF, they're going to give it back to you uh, in not so many words. But um, you know, in a, in a machine readable format where you can. Um, start automating the ingestion of that into their defect tracker, whether it's Jira, ServiceNow, whatever, um, now that's actionable, right? Now those findings are, are actionable. One of the things that we added in 1.5 was support for the, for the proof of concept of the exploit itself. Um, this was something that we've, that we've wanted to do um, and we've aligned the specifications so that if you're using things like HackerOne or any of these other type external type uh, um, uh, services, or even if you're using uh, a, a, an internal application, maybe it's something like OWASP Defect Dojo, um, something similar, um, they all have this concept of, of proof of exploit. And it's really about supplying those payloads, the, the, the screenshots, all the, the steps necessary to reproduce. So if you want development teams to actually fix something, one, it has to be machine readable so that they can start ingesting it into their, their tools right away. And two, you have to provide them all the information that they need to truly understand what that issue was, reproduce it if possible, and so they know the correct mitigation um, uh, to, to, to perform. So that was really the thought process between uh, on one five. Yeah, that seems like a great step forward, yeah. Okay, so next I'm gonna, I hope this isn't a curveball, but um, it, I came across um, some writing that was um, a little bit critical of the expansion, all this expansion of S-bombs. Um, uh, it's like, is this where we should be focusing given that S-bombs don't actually fix anything? Rather, maybe we should be focusing on remediation steps as in how to fix the things that all these new standards create. What are your thoughts on that? 
you know, software bill of materials are not uh, a silver bullet, right? They are, uh, they provide uh, a certain level of transparency. Uh, they don't fix everything. That is absolutely correct. However, um, you cannot fix something that you don't know you have. So the first point is just being able to identify what it is that you actually have. And with the advancements that we've made with Cyclone DX 1.4 and then 1.5, um, you're much more able to now start focusing on the remediation efforts that actually matter. Um, mm -hmm. So yes, they don't fix anything, but it makes it harder for development teams to focus on the right things without the level of transparency that SBOMs provide. That makes a ton of sense. Okay, so my last question to you, what can we expect from uh, the next release and when do you think we're gonna see it? That is an excellent question. We are really excited about the next release of Cyclone. Yeah. I know, uh, I know uh, Jeff Williams, who's been really um, involved in, in one of our working groups, uh, is also very excited about the, the forthcoming release. Um, the next version of Cyclone will be 1.6. Um, mm -hmm. We are also targeting 1.6 for this year. Um, this will be, hopefully, if, if all goes well, this will be the first year that we basically have two major versions of Cyclone DX released in a single year. Um, with 1.6, we are introducing two new things that we believe are really important. Number one, is support for a cryptography bill of materials or CBOM. This is the idea where um, we can start identifying what the cryptographic assets are as well as their dependencies. And there's a couple of different use cases for this, right? One, uh, the short term, the, the long term use case is to identify things that maybe are not post quantum resistant, right? Trying to prepare our applications and systems for a post quantum reality. Um, the short-term uh, benefit from this kind of capability, however, is just trying to identify algorithms and their, and their dependencies that are maybe outdated, right? Is my application using the triple DES um, algorithm, for example? Well, great. You shouldn't be, though, right? No application should be using this. But being able to um, communicate that in a machine-readable way, I think, is really important. Um, the second thing that 1.6 is going to have, which is what Jeff Williams has been really instrumental and, and excited about, is really about bill of attestations. And this is really the idea that we are capturing all the standards, all the requirements, all the attestations, claims, evidence, counter evidence, etc., that go into making a machine readable general purpose attestation framework so that you can take any standard, whether it's you know, um, um, OWASP, SAM, ASVS, you could take SSDF, you could take any of the PCI uh, council standards, you could take BSIM, you could take any of these standards and start at making uh, attest uh, attestations to those standards or your compliance within those standards. So we think this is truly important. The US federal government, for example, they've got a, um, a PDF for SSDF attestations, for example. Um, we don't think a machine readable PDF, I mean, we, PDF is not machine readable. Um, and I think there's a lot of opportunities for us to, um, to, to really automate a lot of this discovery on how, what, what things we're doing in our, in our organization, what claims we're making, 
in preparation of these uh, of these standards. And then if we want to, you know, transform those into PDFs or whatever that, you know, different agencies want, that's fine. But hopefully trading of uh, machine readable uh, attestations will become much and more commonplace because being able to, again, um, in a machine readable way, start attesting to things either through automation or manual means and start communicating that out to your customers. That's just another, another level of transparency that is ultimately going to be important. So as purchasers of software, um, yes, you know, a lot of purchasers are going to be requiring SBOMs and that sort of thing. But in the future, um, you know, other purchasers are going to be requiring attestations in terms of your development practices. Do your developers get yearly security training? Do you have a release management process? Do you have a PCERT function? Do you do X, Y, and Z? Um, and being able to communicate all this in a machine readable way, um, I think is the only way this thing is going to scale, especially for large enterprises that literally have tens of thousands of vendors that they do business with. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, well, that's really exciting. I don't, you know, I don't know if anybody has, people say this all the time or not, but thank you, OWASP, for, for taking care of this stuff. You know, I know there's so many hours go into uh, coming up with these standards. And uh, thank you from the cybersecurity community and the world at large. Thank you. Steve, is there anything else you wanted to um, leave us with before I let you go? Um, like any OWASP project, uh, it is open for all to contribute. So mm -hmm. if anyone is interested in participating in Cyclone DX, go to cyclonedx.org slash participate. Okay, I'm going to drop a link to that when I, if I, when and if I write up this, this podcast interview, that's one of our links. Well, I want to thank you so much, Steve, for taking the time to, to uh, chat with us about Cyclone DX today. We really appreciate you taking time of your day to come on the podcast. Listeners, thanks as always for joining us. Make sure to like, share, and leave us a comment if you've got suggestions for future podcasts or cybersecurity experts you'd love to hear from. You can get in touch with the Code Patrol crew at podcastideas at contrastsecurity.com. Have a great day, stay safe, and we'll look forward to joining you for our next episode of Code Patrol.